Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome to Drive-by Cinema. With me, Rick, and my co-host, Paul. Here we are for Series 3, Episode 28, could it be? 28 of what is ranked at the moment as the 231st most popular podcast on Apple called Drive-By Cinema. Related to movie reviewing. No way. In South Africa. <laughs> An accolade, you may, if ever there was one. You, you may wonder how there, there are I don't know. Was there an 230 there other podcasts about movie reviewing in South Africa, but... Super, superfluous, yeah, surely. We are the 231st. It's the first time I've seen us ranked anywhere. Anyway, so... We're like the Ford Kia 1.2 SE. It's uh, movie reviews. It's the podcast where we watch movies, so you don't have to. But on this occasion, Paul, oh well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh-huh. Hey, listen, Paul. Last last week. Now, be gentle. I'm I'm recovering, as you know, from a prolonged bout of illness. So so please, if it is corrections, just just come at me with gently. Come at me gently with them, Richard. All right. No. Well, let me put it this way. Last week oh, we talked a little bit about gambling. We and did, and we said we were going to resolve some things later on. We did, and you had said something about slot machines, or you don't play the machine; them, you play the previous player. We call them in this country fruit machines, yeah, don't we? Really, not slot machines. And you said something about watching the fruit machine to see whether it had not paid out for a while. No, no, no. I said you don't play the oh. machine; you play the previous player. Yeah, but you're watching other players, Lutes. and if they play it and it hasn't paid out, yes. when they leave the machine dispirited, you know that machine is ripe for payout, and you go straight over to it. That, that was that was the myth, and I, I assume it's correct. Well, why do you think I recoiled or winced at that suggestion, Paul? What, what well, is it you said that? something about the nature of probability, and of course, you winning the game is the same. But what I was suggesting is the machine is, toggles itself to make lot payouts more likely. Aha. Uh-huh. And so I had to go away and try to research this a little bit. But I realised that I'm on a bit of a hiding to nothing. Okay. Why? Because fruit machines don't really exist anymore, do they? Well, that may be true. I don't know. There's something called fixed odds betting terminals, aren't there, in bookies nowadays? Yeah. But obviously, the manufacturers of fruit machines or slot machines... Don't not divulge this, this information, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's not all that easy to come by. Now, I did some research, and I found certain things that were being claimed, certain testimony, some of it from people who were in the industry. But let me start off. So beyond apocryphal, certainly anecdotal, (laughs) and maybe evidential. So, listen. In a civil court, not in a criminal court, at least. In the, the first thing in a civil court, is, we just need a preponderance of evidence. We don't need uh, an abundance of evidence. Some of these things may be controlled by jurisdiction and by law in different yeah. regions. And some of the things I'm about to say are undoubtedly applied to the US slot machine 
manufacturing market and the regulation because slot machine slot machines particularly in like Nevada where Las yeah. Vegas is of course is a, a well regulated industry believe it or not mm-hmm. i say believe it or not because i think a lot of people think that that Vegas is crooked in some way well they say that the, the safest town to park your car is the town where they make crack isn't it well because <laughs> the bloke who sells it don't want the police getting sniffy about anything, so he wants everything above board. He wants the cleanest well, kitchen there is. Moreover, and I think this is more pertinent to Las Vegas, oh, oh, a guy making a lot of money selling crack is not interested in stealing your car and then having the problem of fencing it off. Right? <laughs> because he's making crack money, isn't he? Can I just interrupt? Equally. My, my, my gain is just automatically turning itself back to 100 each time. I don't know why he's doing that. Anyway. You've got auto gain control on somewhere, oh. haven't you? Yeah, so Las Vegas doesn't need to be crooked because the odds are in the house favour. They even ad- advertise that the odds are in the house favour and people still shovel endless quantities of money into the casinos. Yeah. They don't have to they don't have to scam you. They tell you exactly how you're gonna lose and how quickly you're gonna lose, and people go there anyway. Yeah. So they're honest. In Vegas, the slot machines are well regulated and there they have to be generated from a random number generator, a pseudo-random number generator. Right. But nonetheless, there is, a, I think, a government-mandated ma- government algorithm even that they have to use. I see. And slot machines on the factory floor cannot differ from the ones they actually deploy in the casinos. Whoa. So it's audited, and those are random-random, right? So if you watch a Las Vegas slot machine... You see it's not paid out for a while and think it's due and run over to it. It's completely You are committing the gambler's fallacy. Ah. Because they are independent events, just because in the long run, the law of averages suggests that, you know, you will win back 98% or whatever they're giving you in Las Vegas. It does not mean that it's because you've had a long run that the odds are now in your favour. The odds are exactly the same every spin. True. Now... Does that apply to slot machines in the UK? I don't think it I does. I don't know. I do not know. And I've seen testimony both ways from people who claim to have industry knowledge. I've seen people say, yes, it's random. But I've also seen people say what you said or something like what you said, although what you said was very confusing and difficult. Well, can I just set out what, what, I, what I would think the, the system would be? I imagine it would be the same gubbins as a Las Vegas uh, machine, i.e. a completely random number generator. But then afterwards, the result is filtered through, through a payout filter so that prizes can be graduated from, say, a £5 payout to a £10 payout uh, if it's under the 72% payout at that moment. At that moment? Well, I think I think to kick it in, it would have to be under for a certain trigger time, which might be half a day or whatever, and it would have to be under by a consistent amount, maybe 2 or 3%. At that point, there's a slider that kind of ups the payout until it goes to the other side, and then the thermostat kind of ticks itself off, and it goes back to its 72% payout. That was the understanding I had about how UK fruit machines could work without, ex- without excessive regulation, is that they were kind of configured to centre around the, the, the payout amount. Well, all of this is going to depend very heavily on what exactly the regulations are. Mm. And How are we going to find this out? 
Well, I'd have to look it up, wouldn't I? And that sounds awful. Maybe ChatGPT knows about UK law. But anyway, apparently it's it's pretty infradig nowadays to recite your ChatGPT conversations. YouTuber Tom Scott says it's like telling someone your dreams, and I, I kind of see what he means, actually. Yeah. Although he, on the same video, he did also do an entire NordVPN advert written by ChatGPT, so I think he's got room to stand on. Still, the thing is, yeah. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one legal difference I do know about between the UK and certainly the US. And this is something you may have noticed on pub-based fruit machines. In the UK, a chance-based game is a form of a lottery, right? Uh. And you can't just do a form of a lottery like that. Think about all those television um, competitions where they ask you a multi-choice question. But it's a multiple-choice question that's so obvious and easy, you wonder why they bother. They're bypassing the 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 lottery. They're making it a game of skill, and a game of skill doesn't fall foul of the laws about a lottery, which is licensed and so on. So, what about Tom Bowlers and Lucky Dips and Raffles? Well, I guess they're sort of they're kind of casual, aren't they? I don't know. Oh, there's an idea of they're not a cash prize anyway, are they? They're not. No. That's another way I think they get around it as well, by giving tokens sometimes, don't they? But you will notice that every fruit machine that you've used in a pub in the UK, yeah. when you are about button. to win, that well, they have nudge buttons. Which is they, also have one of those li- they also have one of those games where there's a ladder of lights that go up and down. You know, and you press a button, and you have to stop it on the high one. People can nudge. People get good at nudging. There's converting to a five percent advantage to, to be good at to a game of skill. Yeah, there is a general so, advantage if you play a lot. So, the law is different, and I'm not sure that the assumptions that we make about slots in, say, Vegas, would apply to the ones in the UK. And now, anyway, so but the one I wanted to draw attention to was this quiz machines. Yeah, uh, I, I generally, I, I genuinely, which think are games of skill. Which you're going to skill. And of course, with those, because uh, there's not a random number generator, the amount they pay out can vary widely uh, throughout the day. And I think they are toggled to, you know, when they're down on their takings, they'll pay out less. And when they're up on their takings compared to the uh, statutory amount they have to pay out on average, they will toggle, toggle those payouts upwards. What do you mean toggle the payouts? You mean they're going to ask harder questions? That's what you mean, isn't it? Potentially, yes. Yeah. Because you could ask questions that don't have an absolute answer, presumably. You know, like, like what is the capital of France? Yeah, but I also think, because uh, we used well, to play Paul, this, I used to play. answer the question, what's the capital of France? Well, I don't know. You're going to complain if I say Paris, because I haven't pronounced no, it correctly. No, it's capital F, isn't it? Oh. It's Paris, as we all know. <laughs> So you could have A, F, B, Paris, C, Paris. Yes. D, something else, I don't know. Yeah. But the point is, you know, I, in my undergraduate days, I did play these quite a lot. And we used to take teams down to play to play the uh, to play the quiz machines. And I don't think it was apocryphal. I think we noticed, definitely, that 
uh, if there were people consistently losing, and it, we used to we used to you know stake it for three or four hours beforehand, and we watch hundred pounds go in there, and you increasingly see that the jackpot jackpot increase. So there was like a rollover. Oh, yeah, progressive, progressive. So I mean, definitely for those kind of machines, I would I would hedge my bets that they indeed are reactive to previous payouts. Well, they don't need to be, do they? Because Oh, but they do if, because I think they have to pay out a certain amount by law on average. But then they're not a game of chance, so they're a game no, of skills. No, but they're still seen as a form of gambling, aren't they? Okay, Paul, which of us is going to research <laughs> the law around quiz machines, pub quiz machines? Uh, is this all down anymore. to me again? I mean, because you can just Google the answers these days, can't you? Not quick so. enough. You can't Google them quick enough. Anyway, how would it help you? You wouldn't get an answer quick enough. I mean, you'd get pages and pages of adverts, wouldn't you? There's you'd one get pages of... Sorry. <laughs> you like if a... you Googled it, you'd get pages of adverts. And if you put it into <laughs> chat GPT, it would give you the wrong answer very confidently. Very confidently. But no, there's there's always that kind of inter, inter-boss level where they ask you to remember a series a sequence of digits where they flash up. And these days, people can just video that and put it on slow-mo. And then replay it over the twenty seconds they've got to to you know put in the right answers and stuff. So they're not playable these days for a variety of reasons. Oh, defeatist. Oh well, all of which, all of this stuff about fruit machines and slot machines and how they work internally brought me to this idea of knowledge that is completely inaccessible. Should someone should know? Yes, but you basically can't find out. It's basically impossible for anyone to truly know. I mean, unless you worked your way into the industry. That's like a lifetime's work to find out one stupid piece of information. Yes. In like fashion, I've been wondering if there is such a thing as a TV detective van or not, or are they? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm, you know, I'm gonna come straight out Illusions. here and hedge my bets. No, I'm not yes. gonna hedge my bets. I'm fairly gonna say they yes do, or no. They do not exist. So you think that there was never any equipment that BBC could have used to detect? To, I for don't those really who were not in Britain. Because of the way, the unique way the BBC is funded, everyone who owns a television is supposed to have bought a television license. And as a means of enforcing this tax, the BBC claimed, particularly during the 70s and 80s, it strikes me, that they had these vans that would drive around the streets. And anyone who was watching television on a, on a TV that was unlicensed, they'd be able to detect that you were watching and knock on your door and ask for the license fee money. And well, you don't think, Paul, that they existed? I, I can't really see how they could detect uh, the essentially induced eddy currents in an aerial. Is what we're saying? Well, or, or, or there the are a number of electron lines. activity in the, inside the cathode ray tube. I don't know. What, what would you try and detect? I don't know. Well, this is it. There are some very persuasive and convincing explanations of how they worked. But that's exactly what you would expect as propaganda if they were pretending that they worked. <laughs> In an old cathode ray tube, as all televisions were, because you, you, need, you need to control the electrons, and you do that with plates that you vary the voltage across. Now, when the electron beam scanned the television screen, it would do Amazing. so line Fabulous. by line. At the bottom... Brilliant. Of the screen, or it's the like lightsaber. It's amazing, amazing technology. If you think about it, when the beam reaches the bottom of the screen, 
It's got to go all the way back up yeah. to the top left. Oh, very quickly. And You're so, going to see a spike. Now, that voltage was known as the flyback voltage. Ah. And it would be a sudden kind of high voltage that would ramp up. Yeah. And that would emit certainly a signal. And you could detect that. And there's no couldn't. question that cathode ray tubes would emit that that as a, an EM signal. That's not in doubt. Okay. Well, you can, well, you can detect it amid get direction on it, you know, beyond concrete walls and brick walls. And- yeah, yeah, especially when there'll be lots of them in a street yeah. where everyone is watching Coronation Street. I Come don't on. know. But think, if you think about how, like, um, there were things like tempest attacks, which this was an old sort of hacking thing that Secret Services were supposed to use. Supposedly, you could, like, drive up to a bank or something and you could use the Tempest device in your van to tune into any VDU on any of the computer terminals in that bank and see exactly what was being typed. Um, so, now, I've heard an even newer theory about TV detector vans. I think this is all apocryphal and not anecdotal. Like, yeah, I can't, I can't really accept this as evidential in any sense at the moment, Richard. No, but you've got to admit... They might well have There's had a potential one van. For de- I mean, you know, it's a physical phenomenon. Of course you can detect it. But I, I, I would seriously doubt the practicalities of any of what you're suggesting at the moment. They might but well have I'm, had I'm one van. I'm thinking that Richard's got another stage to this, so go on, continue. They might have had one van, right? And they outfit it with all this equipment. Oh, yeah. And it is capable of doing it. And they put it on tomorrow's world. the rest world of dummies. Something. And, yeah, the rest of dummies. Yeah, that, that would be a way of doing it. I've heard there are more recent explanation of TV detector vans, perhaps this is a consequence of the fact that, as we well know, uh, modern LCD screens don't use enormous like voltage things and cathode rays, so they wouldn't emit a flyback frequency. Yeah. And also, quite often people are streaming, so they're not picking up any... They don't have an aerial in the house that might retransmit inadvertently. Um, you know, so... For lots of different reasons. Perhaps this is an explanation, which is either new technology that they really have developed, or it's, again, another smokescreen to sell the illusion. But I've heard that what they can do is they can point a detector at somebody's windows, at your curtains or something, in the night, and they can see and measure the flickering light emitted by the TV screen. And that is a characteristic fingerprint that their computer and their system can match to one of the channels broadcasting live. <laughs> but that said, on digital, there's a characteristic delay anyway. And it could be slightly different from one TV to another. So your computer would have to... You could still do it. You could have a buffer and you could I guess, slide the signals and find the right one. Potentially, you could do it. It's quite exciting, <laughs> isn't it? I, I, I There's no way of knowing. It's, un- it's unknowable. It's unknowable, Paul. Like UFOs. <laughs> it's unknowable, therefore unproven. I, I think, you know, I call baloney on this. Why? Because uh, other times I've been requested to have a TV license. It's quite simple why I've had the request put through the letterbox. That's because I've not paid my TV license. Yeah. Uh, particularly in the era where absolutely everyone had a television. All they did was they, they went through all the postcodes... They have a list of everyone who hasn't got a TV license. And, so the and they just assume that if you don't have a TV license, you have a TV. Yeah. So they send you a, a warning letter. That's how they used to do it. It's fairly reliable, you know. I mean, because I imagine 90% of the people 
that are doing that, that don't have a TV license, are in fact watching TV and not paying a license. So there's no need for detective vans, is there, really? Exactly. Expensive claptrap. Well, imagine anyway, the experiments, you know, I've got to drive up the street, I've got to wait for them to watch while they're watching television, I've got to point at the curtains, get the read off, you know, from the spect- spectrograph- technician. Yeah. spectrographator or whatever it's called, you know, and then print it off and get the results and, you know, I mean. And there'd be those those guys in those, like, brown, like, lab coats, <laughs> the workshop coats, wouldn't they, in the back? Yeah, with look around pipe, you. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, let's play some music. Yes. This week, Paul. Yes, we decided to watch possibly one of the best films ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll maybe come, maybe circle back to that assertion later. Yeah, uh-huh. I think it's too big for us. I don't know how we're supposed to add anything to things that people have said about this film. I see. You're going to ask me what it's called. What is it called? It's called Spirited Away from 2001, um, from the very famous Ghibli Studios. A title that works on several levels because. Partly it's about the Japanese sort of spirit animism kind of culture that they have being expressed here in cartoon form. Yes. Partly it's because the hero disappears from the world for a while, spirited away. And partly because she's a very spirited young girl. Uh-huh. And her name, the hero, oh, is... She, she has two names. She has a real name and she has a spirit world name. And what... What is the name and what does it mean? Because I'm sure, you, right. being a skilled uh, linguist, you know. Her spirit name is Sun, which is just the Japanese for thousand. Uh, which, if you look at some of the interpretations of the movie, could be an indication that because she's a human, all she's interested in is amounts of money kind of thing. Uh, there's whole spins of this movie that doubts we'll get into towards the end about, is it about the effect of Western consumerism on Japanese culture, blah, blah, blah. blah. Uh, but I don't remember her actual name. And her actual name is Chihiro. Chihiro. Oh, yeah. And I think that means thousand fathoms or a thousand questions, something like that. It's quite a popular name, actually, Chihiro. Now, the story goes that uh, the filmmaker... I know it was based on his co-producer's daughter, the whole character for the, for the, for the, uh, for the, for the lead. Miyazaki. Miyazaki. Yeah, Miyazaki, yeah. Ha- Hayao Miyazaki. Now, as you say, it, it was based on him knowing uh, his, you say it's his producer's daughter or co-producer's daughter. I think so, yeah. It's certainly the story goes that he decided because of interactions with some young girls, that sounds terrible, uh, but just because of some girls that he knew, that he wanted to make a film for sort of 10-year-old girls that they could relate to. Oh, right. And that's why she is the hero in this film, a 10-year-old girl or thereabouts, maybe slightly older. It's not his first film, of course. Studio Ghibli has been producing, a, you know, similarly quasi-mystical, kind of whimsical... Why are they called Studio Ghibli? I don't I don't know. I mean, is it a Japanese word? I don't think it is, is it? Chosen by Miyazaki from the Italian noun uh-huh. Ghibli based on the Libyan-Arabic name for hot desert wind. I see. 
The idea being that the studio would blow a new wind through the anime industry. Uh, apparently, it's also the name of an Italian aircraft because quite a lot of his stuff has aircraft in it. Um, is some of his earlier films or other films a lot of planes in them and stuff? This doesn't have any planes in it, as such though. Story of this film is at the start, the hero Chihiro, she's in the back of her parents' car, and they're driving. They're obviously moving to a new place, and she's clutching bunch of flowers that I think her classmates have given her at her old school, wishing her well on her journey. She's quite sad because the plants are dying. And you see landscape going past, and they're getting close to their new place. They're due to be going to meet the movers who are moving in. Um, And you see a little pile of little shrines, like little houses, which I think something to do with, again, this spirit animist kind of stuff, isn't it? Well, I assume that they're the shrines of the dead, aren't they? Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, okay. I don't know, because, I mean, I've never actually examined this in detail in Japan, but, you know, throughout the rest of Asia, uh, people are buried on the mountainside, facing a certain way, uh, with a shrine that the family can go and visit and clean, periodically kind of thing. So, And she also sees a strange statue, a carved sort of dolmen, in a forest. And it, it's actually rendered sort of in 3D as well, don't you? You notice that. It's, he's blending in this. Yeah. He's blending computer-generated stuff. Or perhaps they draw over it, I don't know, but all of the angles and the geometry is generating, I think, in 3D. Well, so actually, I think the rest of the movie is completely hand-drawn, somewhat amazingly. Uh, it's pretty It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. I, 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 almost any frame of this would be like a worthy picture for a wall, I think. Yeah, I was. I kept thinking about that because you can often buy cells from films, can't you? I mean, uh, the whole process of you know Japanese uh, movie making, you know, is is often from manga, you know, direct to film kind of thing. But this is obviously it was it was it, the screenplay was written intentionally for a movie. It hadn't come from a book or a comic yeah. beforehand. No, so it's, it's original work. Yeah, yeah original yeah. work. Her dad is driving. Her dad is driving up this kind of off roady, kind of un, unpaved track isn't he and it eventually they have to stop because there's a building right there on the road and it looks like an old style building an yeah. old vernacular kind of thing but actually her mum points out it's really kind of a fake it's made of plaster or something mark yeah it's daubed in cheap plaster yeah, yeah. it must be like what going to camelot theme park is in fact you could you could imagine this whole thing taking place in charlotte richard yeah, in, in I thought ways. this is a really nice liminal moment. You know, they they rise up the country mm. path in the heat of the summer day. The, the cityscape is beneath them, and suddenly there's this weird kind of like just change of atmosphere. That's it's very focused on their steps. You know, as they move up and towards things. Maybe this is after and they've gone through this entrance. They've gone through the tunnel. It's an entrance tunnel, isn't it? Which is important. Fabulous kind of change in mood. And if you've ever been like in East Asia and climbed a mountain, there is this wonderful. Just change of atmosphere, and here it's preparing us obviously for 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 a liminal change towards the spirit world. But it was really nicely done, I thought. At that point, the echoes in the footsteps and how it suddenly became much more focused on what they were doing, kind of thing. It was very good. Well, that first shot of the grass-covered hill was a lot like the Windows ninety-five backdrop screensaver type thing, wasn't it? Just that I imagine you were waving your mouse, were you at that point, thinking it had gone to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> 
But her dad says that it's an abandoned theme park. And this strikes back to some of the things you were saying about the economic basis of this film. Mm-hmm. He was saying that in the 90s, um, that they built loads of these things, loads of theme parks. But then the economy went bad and they had to all be abandoned. This is an example. It's a skeletal remains of you know, economic trouble, isn't it? Our parents are smelling delicious food somewhere, even though yeah. this place is abandoned. They're not very patient with her, aren't they? They can't like just kind of leave her to clamber on the rocks on her own, kind of thing. Well, they've probably been driving for a while. They're probably they're probably hungry. It's understandable, isn't it? Four wheel drive Audi, by the way. Foreign car. Well, they find a row of restaurants, mostly derelict, but her, her dad finds one with lights on that seems to be uh-huh. working. No one in there, but it's piled high with food. It, I don't know what it is. It so at this like, point, we've got abandoned uh, theme park, kind of like crypto temple entrances to the theme park. Everything's got a bit, little bit weird and a little bit trippy, like, you know, day out kind of or spooky. Uh, but when does the fever dream begin, Richard? I think it's been about two minutes' time, isn't it? Well, I mean, maybe the dream began when they went through the tunnel. If indeed it is a dream, who knows? I mean, for us, when does our, when our, when our, quite frankly, disconcerting trip with this movie begin? <laughs> for us, it, it begins very soon because yeah. our parents... Turn into pigs. They start eating ravenously <laughs> first, though, don't they? They're just yeah. picking things up. Her dad says <laughs> it'll be fine. Because Shihira's got serious social anxiety here, hasn't she? She... She doesn't think they should be just sitting down at a restaurant. So she leads them to it. She walks away, letting them stuff their faces. She sees a, a bridge to a big building with the word oil on the flag outside. That's right, yeah. Uh, and it's got the word bathhouse over the door as well. And she looks down, she sees a train. The train is quite important as well. It's another kind of liminal space thing, isn't it, though? Because it's like in, you know, there's nothing around, is there? No. Nobody and nothing is there, but the train is just ploughing through the uh, the countryside. She meets a little boy um, who's angry at her, says that she shouldn't be there, she must leave. Haku, yeah, I think his name is. And he says he'll distract them. And he he blows kind of petals from his hand, and they form a cloud while she runs away. So... She dashes back down to where those restaurants were. By this time, the sun is going down, and Haku had warned her about, you know, not being here when it's night. And all of these shadowy spirit sort of denizens are taking their seats and walking around the what was derelict restaurants. Just their eyes glowing, sort of creepily. And when she gets to the restaurant that she left her parents at, as you say, they have now turned grotesquely into pigs. Gigantic pigs. Still wearing their clothes. So, obviously, this is terrifying for Chihiro. By the way, what age of child do you think this film is suitable for? I mean, here in the West, it has a PG rating under threats. Um, (laughs) And I certainly think it deserves that. I mean, because it didn't take the traditional route to movie, did it? it? I mean, typically, nearly everything that we see as anime has started life as a manga, hasn't it? So, I mean, I think it is ostensibly in the style of uh, uh, shoujo, which is manga made for girls, uh, or tween girls. Uh, so therefore, you have to assume that it's it's for, I don't know, 11 to 14-year-old girls, kind of thing. 
But there are some bits of this which, frankly, are terrifying. Certainly creepy, disconcerting, unnerving. Um, so, well, but, you know, Japan is a culture where they have a sort of game show, reality show, where they send little kids out on errands, don't they? Like That's right. Five, four or they five also send out a monkey and a bulldog, too, on errands. What? Yeah. <laughs> That's, seriously, it's like, yeah, they've got a whole TV show about sending a monkey and a bulldog out to do things together. What, what do they? What do they do? Usually, they get stuck at a, like stream, and the monkey has to lead the bulldog across it. Kind of. <laughs> like the the monkey sorts that out, does it? Yeah, the monkey always pays the the the, the fare on the bus and stuff like that. <laughs> but anyway, we what you were saying about this. Japanese game show. Well, there's it, lots well, of Japanese, was, Japanese game shows, but well, I was just saying there's there's one where they get a, a young kid, much younger than say an American show might even entertain this idea, and they just send them out into the world, you know, on their own. But there's cameras following them, you know, yeah. and you know they walk along the street or whatever, and they go to the shop, or you know, it's just because they're so young, it's you know, endearing and. Amusing. It <laughs> would never be allowed here. Yeah. Exactly, it wouldn't be allowed. But I think in Japan, that's it's considered normal to give your kids a little bit of independence. Well, to, more than that, I mean, it's considered an honour if your baby can be taken up into the sumo 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 ring and growled and uh, you know man- manhandled by the two sumo wrestlers until they start crying. Until they start crying. What the wrestlers? Yeah. No, no, whatever. the baby, the baby. I see. Yeah. Well. Uh, and what? So if they don't cry, they become a sumo wrestler. Is that? I, I don't know. I don't know. But maybe it's some sort of deal, some sort of uh, spirit spirit world deal that we're going to learn about later in this movie. Sorry, Rich, you were saying. So uh, yes, yeah, definitely. It's a scary movie. Well, Chihiro flees in terror, having seen her parents turn turned into pigs, and there are these shadow spirits, as I mentioned, in the street. She goes back toward the car, but she finds that where there was. Those rolling fields and a, you know, a little dried up stream. There's now a wide body of water. Portal's already closed. Yeah. And she looks down. She finds that she is fading away. Not terribly transparent. Yeah. Transparent. Um, a riverboat pulls up close to her, and all of these, and again, creepy. Loads of these paper masks kind of trump, troop off the boat, and as they do so, their bodies materialize behind the masks. And all of these spirit denizens of this realm, like emerge into this uh, this street of shops and things. The boy, who we know, as you mentioned, is called Haku, finds a hiding near there, and he gives her a berry and says, "You must eat food of this world, or you'll disappear." Uh, and he says, "Don't worry, it won't turn you into a pig." Um, and then they have to hide as this crow with a woman's head flies over. Yeah. Yes. Just uh, trouble getting up, and the boy casts some kind of enchantment on her, and she springs to her legs. And he leads her back to the bridge where he f- she first met him, near the bathhouse. So she's now fully formed and back in her body, but she's back fully in uh, a spirit body, presumably. Well, he tells her that in order to cross the bridge, and there's lots of other creatures crossing the bridge as well. I say creatures, yeah. people who look like frogs quite often. But he says, you'll have to hold your breath as you cross the bridge. Because you smell like a human. Well, that wouldn't explain why she has to hold her breath 
Oh, you're saying they can smell her exhalation, her respiration. So they get very nearly to the end of the bridge, and she's holding her breath, comically, you know. And a a, a She's rather accident-prone. She's kind of clumsy, yeah. Yeah. In an endearing kind of ten-year-old way. Completely. Completely endearing. A normal-sized frog kind of stops in front of them. Yes. And Haku casts a spell on him, uh, on the frog, and encapsulates him into a bubble. And as everyone is looking around in shock, he kind of zooms off so fast that his feet leave the ground, and he's holding Chihiru's hand. She's lucky to get away without some whiplash there, isn't she, really? Absolutely. The G-forces must have been incredible. Incredible, yeah. That's why woodpeckers close their eyes when they're pecking wood. What, so their eyeballs don't pop up? Yes. That's why humans close their eyes when they sneeze. Imagine that. You'd have like an MMA fight going around, wouldn't it? (laughs) What? Has that happened in an MMA fight? Yes. Oh, God, please don't know. I shouldn't have said that. Well... It just underlines why I have no wish ever to watch an MMA fight of any kind. Fingerless gloves and fighting, not a good idea, really, is it? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway. Well, Haku is hiding her uh, in the sort of garden of this bathhouse, and he tells her uh, that she must do as he says always if she wants to get her parents back, as it were. And he says... She must go to the boiler room of the bathhouse, speak to a guy called Kamaji. Yes. And ask for a job, insist. And he says, basically, if she insists on a job, they have to give it to her. Otherwise... But he'll trick her into not taking it. Otherwise, Yubaba, the witch who runs the bathhouse, will turn her into an animal. He says, when she tells him her name, he says that he's known her since she was very small. Ooh, mysterious. So she dashes off anyway. She finds her way down the outside of the building to where the boiler house is, sort of in the basement. And she finds this multi-armed guy with a big moustache called Kamaji. And he has an army of the cutest little sup balls, each carrying one piece of coal. I couldn't really work out what they were. Sut balls. Right. He says he calls them sut balls at I one see. point. They appear to be like spider-like. The little things. spiders, yeah, but the little balls of soot. They've got little arms and legs. They carry the coal. made out of that felt piping that you used to draw <laughs> with when you were a kid. What's that? What's that felt piping called? Pipe cleaners. It's what you needed to use if you wanted to build any of the more exciting things on Blue Peter. But also, what but was that course, stickable felt we used to shapes called? Oh, fuzzy felt. Oh, fussy felt. Not fussy felt. Pipe cleaners, yeah. They're like little spider pipe cleaners. <laughs> They're incredibly cute, anyway. In many ways, the star of the film for me. Um, and meanwhile, Kamaji is grinding her. They're the Ewok moments, aren't they? Yeah, they are the Ewoks. Yeah. He's chain smoking as well. There's a lot of fags uh, that guy has. And as he's doing this, like tokens arrive down from above on ribbons, little wooden tokens which seemingly from the bathhouse above. And he like takes them and like instructions for what kind of water they want and what herbal herbal additions they want in the water, which he builds from many, many drawers behind him. He's got like six really uh-huh. long legs, and he, uh, or arms, all legs, and he can pull stuff from any of the drawers and grind them up and make these herbal remedies infusions. 
Anyway, Chihiro's getting in the way of all these little sutballs. She asks him for a job, but he says he doesn't need her because he's got these sutballs as his workers. But he's quite nice about it. Well, fortunately, another woman arrives through with a hatch food, yeah. at this point. And she feeds the sutballs with little stars, coloured stars, which they seem to love. And she agrees, like, begrudgingly to take Jairo up to see the witch, Yubaba, to ask for a job. And, and they do that. Now, they have to do that by going up through the bathhouse. Uh, anyway, she has a chat with this, this boss. Yubaba's been explaining that this is a bathhouse. Spirits come to replenish, replenish themselves. She says her parents deserve to be pigs because they were greedy. But she's furious that she's invoked the right to work. She implies that she's under some kind of agreement or contract, which means that she has to give a job to anyone who asks for one. So the little girl signs away her original name. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Not before, actually. There's a little moment where Chihiro is saying something and Yuba wants to shut up. So she kind of zips her mouth so she can't speak anymore. Mm. Oh, yeah, we um, see them, which, which is, is magical powers, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's quite like The Matrix, that, which was only two years before, 1999, when The Matrix came out. Interesting. Um, yeah, anyway, so, because Oliver's shouting was waking up Yubaba's baby, who's this huge, enormous, and again, terrifying um, baby, you know, the size of a, of a small shed. Um, but yeah, as you say, she gets a contract, she signs her name away, and what that means is Yubaba literally she takes the letters of her name, at least some of them, from the page, leaving only part of her name, Sen, which I think is the same symbol as Chi, as in Chihiro. Chihiro. Now she's called Sen, apparently, and the boy Haku arrives to take her to a job, but he's kind of like pretending that he doesn't know her and sort of. Sen gets dumped on, or Chihiro gets dumped on Lin, the woman who took her up to Yubaba. And Lin is looking after her, like mentoring her. She gives her a uniform. She's Obviously, she's very upset at night. This rather scary character, again, sort of a mask face hmm. with a spirit, a dark spirit body. They call him No Face later on. That's right, yeah. I mean, so there are nice shots here. There's the bright lights, the warm lights of the bathhouse up in the mountain. And then dark outside and him appearing slowly towards the bathhouse. And she assumes he's a customer. Somewhat stupidly, but nobody's given any formal training or onboarding. So it's forgivable, I guess, isn't it? Haku gives her her old clothes. He He says she'll need them to get back to her own world. Realm. And also included in there is the card she was clutching that were in the flowers, which has her name on it. And it reminds her of her name because... Her name had been stolen by the witch. She'd kind of forgotten it. And he says that if you forget your name, you know, you, you'll you never get, get yourself back and go home kind of thing. And he gives her some enchanted food. And, and in, again, endearingly, she's sort of tearful. She cries as she's eating Aww. it. But it's a really sort of, uh, it's a really warm moment between them. And no face, unbeknownst to her, I think, follows her toward the bathhouse. Has he tried to give her some gold at this point? No. Not yet. No, no, no. So the next day, and she starts working mopping the floors. Uh, Getting rid of and she's, customer. This is when she sees no face outside in the rain. That's right. As she's emptying the bucket out of the, the, the doors. So she says she'll leave the door open for it. Aww. And so it's 
in a way, she's invited it in, which I guess is yeah. some kind of spirit rule. So it enters silently behind her. Um, meanwhile, she's been given this really stinky job because this enormous sort of mud spirit, stink spirit, I think, has arrived. Uh, yeah, apparently it's spirit of a polluted river. A polluted river, that's right. Yeah, so... Um, it's coming in to have a bath. Chihiro has to give it a bath. Now, she tries to get... a. Uh, she tries to get a token for a special herbal bath from the foreman, the toad foreman, but he won't He's give it to her because yeah. they're trying to make life difficult. It's it's really um, a hostile work environment she's been put in, isn't it? They're trying to they're trying to get a sort of constructive dismissal kind of thing. They going are, on. they are. You're absolutely right, Richard. Here. Yeah, they're bullying her. Cinderella, but, isn't it? No face, who's kind of her mate now because yeah. she she left him in the bathhouse. He kind of slips her. At first, just one token, but later, loads of these tokens, which apparently are pretty valuable, I think. So she's able to go back, get all this cleansing water for this stinky spirit. And while she's in there, she winds up in the tub with it after an accident. And she finds what she describes as a thorn in its side. And Yubaba kind of clicks at this. She kind of knows what's going on. And she rushes down and gives a rope to Sen tells her to tie it around the thorn uh, but we can see actually it's a handle of a bicycle like you get in a polluted river she ties it on there and then the, all of the sort of staff pull on the rope and all of this garbage and crap and trash sort of emits from this this spirit thing this and he comes out as a little sort of clean somewhat smaller spirit and gives her an emetic token as a thank you she, it's a little little ball, isn't it? Like a ball of fluff. Yeah. I, I, it, it seemed like what they, in Harry Potter they called a bezoar, but oh. they call it later a herbal cake. She tries a little bit of it, actually, when she's eating, and it apparently isn't very nice. As you say, it's emetic. <laughs> it's very important later, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's a river spirit, a dragon, and he flies out in dragon form once he's clean. Uh, it's a really cool sequence. Um, now, and, does No yeah. Face try and give her a little bit of gold that she refuses, or has he already, already done that? No, the gold comes from the river trash. It's on the floor after yeah. all the stuff has come out of the river. And he manifests more gold from it. And initially, he offers a little bit to... He offers a little bit to what to Sen, but Sen doesn't want it. Yeah, Sen refuses the gold, that's right. And somehow, this is weird, because somehow No Face... She, she grows in No Face's estimation even more because of this. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, she has moral fortitude, doesn't she? Meanwhile, the little frog guy gets eaten whole I mean, by Ghostface. You know, if you're going to be friends with a malevolent, malevolent uh, entity, at least make sure you're friends with it. And I think she's guaranteed that. You know, she's really bonded with No Face. So well done. Yeah, uh, but then No Face eats that little frog guy. Oh. Just swallows him. Yeah. And now he can speak with its voice, which is another cute touch. Oh, because prior he's to that. So shapeshifter, isn't he? Can manifest and change. Uh, uh, uh. Well, he's a spirit, I guess. He can, oh, they can all do that, can't they? <laughs> now, Chihiro goes to try and see her parents. She thinks feeding the bezoar, the, no, the whatever it's called, the herbal cake that she's got, the emetic to her parents, will cure them. But she can't find which pigs there are because they're now in a full piggery. Getting ready to be eaten by spirits. 
And there's loads of them, and she doesn't know which ones are her parents. So she comes back to the bathhouse, and it's in chaos. All the staff are trying to feed No Face, who's sort of growing visibly. And as they do so, it's manifesting gold and throwing it at them, and they're all desperate to get gold. And it's eating everything they bring it. Deep um, themes here to be discussed at a later date, I think. Rather um, obvious themes. Chihiro Sen is missing Haku, and she's looking out from the balcony, and she sees this dragon that she saw before. It's being pursued in the sky by hundreds of these little paper birds that are swarming. They out. have a name. Uh, those are like representatives of small spirits, aren't they, in Shinto Buddhist tradition? Ah, so it's a proper traditional. Shiki, shiki, shikigami, I think. Haku flies in through a window. And she sort of pulls the slide shut, and lots and lots of them hit the the exterior of the slide. So she kind of got them off Haku. Um, but he has a bad landing, doesn't he? He well, he's hurt, isn't he? He's bleeding. Oh. She turns around, and one of those paper bird things, those sh- what's the word? Shiki shiki shikigami. It slips through the gap in the window, and it sort of attaches itself to her back. Which will become important later. Ah, I did. I forgot to. I forgot about that. Well done. Haku has gone upstairs to see Yubaba. He's flown back out and back up to Yubaba's uh, penthouse, as it were. So she climbs up to the penthouse because she knows that Haku's hurt and wants to help him. Mm. And she manages to get into a locked window because that little paper thing, unbeknownst to her actually, slips in through the window crack and unlatches it for her. She finds herself in the nursery of that giant baby, which she, I think, accidentally wakes up. Uh, but as, as it has a tantrum for being woken up, the paper bird thing turns into someone who looks exactly like Yubaba. Turns out to be Yubaba's twin sorceress sister. <laughs> called Zaniba, I think. Now, she says that uh, Haku stole her magic seal. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is like the chops you referred to, the things that you sign stuff with. Mm-hmm. That- but what he doesn't know is his magic seal is protected. By a curse. By a curse. Well, actually by a slug, <coughs> but I guess having a slug inside your body would be a curse. There we go. That's the spirit representation of a curse, Paul. It and is. also, Zaniba amusingly turns the, the huge baby into a fat mouse and the bird with the head of an old woman the crow. She turns it into a little black hummingbird. Yeah. Which for the rest of the movie now, really, the hummingbird is going to pick the fat mouse up by like it's quite cute, isn't it? And fly it around. Very Rose and Grants and Guildenstein little sub, sub stuff going on there. It's lovely. She turns the three headless bouncy things all together into uh, an, an simulacrum of the baby. So it won't be missed. Very clever. Um, so essentially, she's kidnapped her sister's baby. Uh, we're told she's the evil one, but it turns out that she's not really the evil one of the two. Uh, and uh, does she take our heroine away at this point? No. Does no. She have a, what happens she has is, a set to with her sister of the first one, doesn't she, or something? I can't remember. No, what happens is Haku sees Zaniba, and he uses his tail, he flicks it, and it, it, it rips the paper bird that she's... So she's really there or... Inhabiting, like yeah, or, or projecting through. 
So Zaniba disappears. But They're then spirits anyway, aren't they? So. Haku gets pushed down. I think Yubaba get, uh, pushes Haku down this pit, this hole, and he falls uh. down and winds up in the boiler room. And Chihiro follows him. She grabs onto him, as does the little mouse that's the baby in disguise and the hummingbird carrying it. And in the boiler room, she tends to Haku because he's injured and not well, and blood is everywhere. And she feeds him half of the, the emetic. herbal cake. And the emetic makes it makes him throw up both the seal, which he'd swallowed, and the little black slug that was on it. Which represents which, a curse in spirit world, spirit world morphology. Which um, Chihiro winningly squishes between her bare foot and the floor. And... So we're given to understand that I think Hacker's going to be okay, but they let him rest and recover. Good little thing. And C decides that she's going to make things better with Zaniba. Sorry, Chihiro. Sen decides she's going to make things better with Zaniba by taking her, the seal back. So Kamaji, the old guy with the lot, lots of legs, gives her a train ticket and tells her how to get to Zaniba's by train. Not before she's sorted out No Face. Isn't that right? On the way, as she goes now... She the goes rest of the emetic no she face. feeds to No Face, doesn't she? And No Face therefore vomits up the frog and two other staff members that it, it had swallowed. And now No Face is going to follow uh, Sen because it's obviously rescued her in many ways. Uh, and so there's this amazing sequence now where she goes... The, the the land has been flooded by the heavy rains, and the train now moves through shallow water to give this really eerie feeling. I suppose you know the flat flatness of the mm. the, the surface of the water. They've obviously the train put a lot of thought into these kind of these shots, haven't they? You know, the kind of ferryman moments into other worlds, kind of stuff. It's it's really well done. And so she's there. She's accompanied by this little mouse and a hummingbird carrying it hilariously no face following silently behind they all board the train and um, they wind up in a a European kind of farmhouse area like in the European vernacular and it's night is falling at the stage Zaniba is living here and Sen makes her apologies for Haku stealing it and gives her the seal back Tells her what she did with the slug. And Zaniba says that, that was Yubaba's spell of control over Haku. And she laughs that this this little girl was able to sort of defeat the spell. She says that it's love that's done it. So we're getting conflicting messages about who the bad spirit is here, aren't we, you see? And I guess, it, it, you know, in this Buddhist kind of uh, Shinto mold, I mean, there is no good or bad spirit, is there really? No, exactly, yeah. It's all shades of grey, you know. Uh, and it's all, as well, it's all rule-based, isn't it? When, like, as we're going to see, the fact that her parents were turned to pigs and what she has to do to undo that, seems they all seem to be bound by rules. So they're not necessarily... Yeah, I mean, Yubaba's not really keen on her own rules, except, of course, she can't slaughter uh, uh, Sen's parents because her baby's missing. Suniba tells her to call her granny. It's a little hair tie. And she gives it to Chihiro and says this will protect you and Haku at this point arrives fully fit again in dragon form and he flies them all back 
holding on to Shihiro's hand. Sort of, it's very similar to the snowman, isn't it? The way that they yes. can fly around. Yeah. And as he's flying back, as they're flying back, Chihiro tells him that he remem- she remembers falling in to a river as a kid uh, because she'd lost a shoe in it. Instead of washing her away down the river, it carried her to the shallow area by the shore and it saved her. And that was the Kohaku River. Yes. And that must be Kohaku's original name, Haku's original name. He says, yes, my name is Kohaku. Thank you for releasing me. And so, you know, they really have known each other because he saved her as a little girl. So even spirits can be their real name can be taken from them. It's kind of weird, isn't it? The laws here, and someone doesn't need to explain itself and doesn't want to explain itself. But there we go. So yeah, and I think we're given to understand that the river is the the dry river that her parents crossed. That was part of the because perhaps the developments that were built that they were moving into very close to there must they must have drained the river for it. Hmm. And pretty so much the sense, movie's over know. at this point, isn't it? How does it resolve itself? Well, uh, Yubaba gets her baby back. And she says that... He's much improved. He's less spoiled. That's right, because she'd been mollycoddling it, keeping it locked away, really. Too scared to let it out. And there's a test for Chihiro to see which of the pigs... And she has a, a row of different pigs. Which ones are her mother and father? Yeah, very wrong. And Chihiro looks at them. And she says, none of them. They're not here. I mean, cheers. Hooray. And then the translation becomes very American high school for a moment. Like, go, yeah, go, girl. You did it, yeah. <laughs> I love it when Japanese movies do that. They've got a Japanese person translating it. And the whole sort of social like, changes in the translation. And Haku, of course, leads her home. And as she steps out across the field, across the river, toward where the little tunnel is, oh. he says that he can't go any further. And she has to promise not to look back. Oh. And it, it is heartbreaking, isn't it? So, yeah, like Grimm's, Grimm's stories for, for a whole new century, aren't they, really? I mean, well, that's it, isn't it? It's a modern fairy tale. When she gets back, her parents are awaiting her. And they're saying, where have you been? But the car is covered in leaves and dust, suggesting they've been wasn't there. It wasn't just a fever dream. Or too many shiitake mushrooms. When they're driving away, there's a difference here between the dub and the subtitle version, Uh. and consequently the Japanese uh, soundtrack. In the dub version, they added two lines where um, I think the dad goes, it's it's a new home and a new school, it's all a bit scary. And Chihiro says to her dad, I think I can handle it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether that's a good addition or a bad addition. But I, 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 okay. I suppose it's quite cute. Departures from the social likes and vernacular. But yeah, and that's it, really. Okay, so, I mean, lots of things to say. I, I mean, it is, it's not shonen, is it? It's not manga made for boys. It's definitely shoujo manga made for girls, particularly the tradition of the hero here, Haku, who's, you know, blemishless, uh, very vulnerable, is going to lose the fight. You know, always happens in the girl manga is that the, the one they love is a bit of a softie, really. Like, uh, the romantic love is exceptionally romantic. Uh, so, it, I mean, it's all built around that, but it's a departure from that at the same time, isn't it? Is this is this a good kind of role model-y type thing for, for young girls? I ask the question because when she arrives and she gets the job, 
the job that she's given, along with all the other females in the place, is scrubbing the floors. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's obviously got gumption and real morals. She's a great role model in those respects. But it's, it seems slightly regressive, maybe. I don't know. Is that a fair criticism? Of the spirit world, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's a bathhouse for for potentially evil spirits, which are potentially run by evil spirits. I mean, evil. You call them evil, Paul. They're not evil. Why are they evil? They're potentially evil. They're spirits, aren't they? So, you know, there's this thing, isn't there, in Japan, where like every like a- everything and anything can have a mascot, and, and often does. Yeah. You know, you'll go to a little town or a village, and something will have a mascot yeah. dressed up as yeah. that's. I've got a friend, he's Chinese, but he worked in Japan as Pan Pan Man. As Pan Pan Man. Dressed as a slice of bread. Slice of bread? <laughs> <laughs> he earned good money whilst he was studying out there, actually. And what does he do when he's dressed up as a slice of bread? So, you know, does a hand wave thing that mascots do and gets people to come to buy bread in the store. This idea that anything, inanimate object or, you know, plant, animal or anything can be embodied by a character, an animated thing. Or a particularly annoying mischievous spirit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, no, definitely, definitely mascots. That's I mean, there's a whole there's a whole research paper there, isn't there? Mascots and, and animism in Japan, yeah. And this story seems to be something to do with greed or drives or desires, and self control is very important. And the, it, there is a, something about rules, and there is something about collectivism. I think about the submission of the individual to a degree, isn't there? Right. There is. You- I'm, I'm going to read the three kind of the three takes they've got on it on the web generally. Oh, what well, cleverer people than us have done this, have they? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, what do you think of it, Paul? Do you think it were it deserves the accolades that are often heaped upon it? Uh. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't help thinking like me myself. I was thinking like, well, it's it's so reminiscent of so many movies, but not in a copious kind of way. I mean, yeah, the first thing to exist. say it, it's really similar to Alice in Wonderland, isn't it? Oh, well, now you say that, it's obvious, isn't it? It does have strong parallels with that, and it's so so similar, of course, to uh, Wizard of Oz. I suppose so. Yeah. But at the same time, it's inc- it seems incredibly Japanese. You know, th- th- this Shintoism, this animism, all of the stuff it- it is very strongly portrayed in it. I mean, it- you couldn't mistake it for... Uh, clearly, there are elements that echo Alice in Wonderland and Wizard of Oz, but you, you couldn't mistake it for those, could you? No. It doesn't come from the same tradition. No, I mean it's weirder than it's weirder than the first, and it's kind of more sophisticated than the second, isn't it? Whatever that you know, whatever it's trying to say, it says in a much more subtle way. Sorry, the third theme, apart from Western consumerism, I think consumerism was the idea of Japanese tradition. Uh, sorry, uh, the third one was environmentalism. It's an idea that this is all about yeah, yeah. environment, you know, that kind of thing. But I think you know those those. I mean, I, th- I think they're present in the writer's mind, but ultimately. It's 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 a hero's quest and transformation, isn't it? I mean, it's a traditional tale. Uh, so yeah, so I couldn't help noticing like just the parallels that it had with other movies. 
Uh, and that kind of detracted from me appreciating the movie as a whole on its own. For me, it's, it's the shots, you know, and the liminal, the liminal transitions and that sense of space and specialness they get from night lights or just the way it's all set is, is quite magical, really. So as an effort in animated cinematography, it's superlative, isn't it? Yeah, it looks amazing. Yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, Spielberg said this is better than any Disney movie ever made. Which is because Disney became the U.S. distributor for Studio they did. Ghibli. They did. Um, yeah. So, what do you think, Rich? Uh, oh, yeah. I I think it's pretty amazing. I think it is well worth. I think it has ninety seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Whoa. Um, which I mean, it's not the highest. It was, I think, the second animated film to win an Academy Award. I think that's true. And uh, it was the highest-grossing movie in J- Japanese history uh, until I think there's another one now that that's beaten it. But it certainly did amazing, uh, amazing figures in Japan. Um, yeah, it's just a charming story, uh, if a little bit scary at times. I mean, when No Face is chasing her through the bathhouse with its gnashing teeth, that, that's <laughs> legitimately terrifying. <laughs> The other movie that you have to, you know, said in another realm that it bears, bears a resemblance to is Pinocchio. Hmm. Uh, particularly, well, what the boys changed, changed, they changed the donkeys, aren't they, in Pinocchio? Uh, oh, really? Yeah. That's in no, an amusement I... land also, isn't it? Kind of thing. So there's some weird kind of like very deep themes that repeat themselves here. But generally, I just got a Grimm's fairy tale. Thing you know, which I don't often get with Japanese anime. I got this. Uh, what kind of universal feel to this movie? I think it does have universal appeal. Yes, and it yeah, it does. Into, right. You know, kind of Jungian archetypes, if you like, about about what fundamentally motivates us as humans. So, so yeah, definitely. Well, Powerful let's boil movie. the whole confection down to the crude representation of numbers. Yeah, <laughs> dead poet society, go and eat yourselves. Right. Okay. So, uh, brr, well, plot. I don't know what categories we choose for an animated movie. Mm. I mean, I mean, we could do acting, but I mean, characterization. Did you... Characterization, I thought was strong. Characterization, okay, was yeah. strong, you know, uh, but not surprising, you know. If this had been shown, and you know, the the boy hero would have been a lot more rugged, uh, quite a bit more bad mouth and bad tempered, and. Uh, you know, it, it was a female hero, wasn't it? As 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 Haku the Dragon, uh, a blemishless hero, uh, and uh, our young heroine. I, you know, I mean, I I I think that kind of coquettish, kind of adorable clumsiness was very well portrayed. Uh, and yeah, it's all really good. I, the kind of witches. I I mean, obviously the Japanese are comfortable with witches. Being partially evil, quite evil, not evil at all, quite nice. Uh, that for me, just as a Westerner, didn't sit well. Like, you know, Wizard of Oz resolves it quite clearly. There's a good one, there's a bad one, isn't there? Um, uh, but then again, if a bad witch says she's good, how are you not, how are you going to believe either of them? I don't know. Uh, it's like those moments in movies where they say, no, I'm the real one. No, he's the real one. Or he's the fake one kind of thing. Somebody's got an imposter and you've got to decide who to shoot. Uh, so, generally, the characterization I thought was strong. I would give it eight. Richard, what do you think? Oh, I just love the little cute things. I like the mm-hmm. little frog guy. 
I liked the subtle incredible attention to detail. Yeah, yeah. I love the little hummingbird. Uh, yeah, hummingbird carrying the fat mouse. Brilliant! <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, I didn't yeah. notice that. That's brilliant. I have to give it a nine. Wow. Okay, plot. Plot. I thought was very, very well structured. You know, uh, the move from the real world to the world of spirits and that liminal transition. It was done twice, wasn't it, in the movie? Well, three times. Beautifully done. Uh, the goodbye from Haku the hero. Uh, and, you know, the plot development and the plot twists. Kind of to be, ex- kind of to be expected. Uh, for me, a nine for the plot. Oh, yeah, it's certainly a nine for the plot. It's beautifully, beautifully done. And it's not too long. It's just a masterpiece. Yeah. I was worried it was going to be long, but it actually flew by the two hours, two and a quarter hours that this movie takes. Yeah. So, how about uh, cinematography and animation? The visuals, yeah, yeah. Like, like I say, it, any image from this film, I think, would be you could frame it and put it on a wall. Mm. You? It's absolutely beautiful. It's a nine easily. I, it's one of those weird ones where you know, I mean, it's just it's traditionally hand animated. Uh, you know, maybe Japanese style, maybe sixteen frames per second. So it never doesn't not look like animation. But I kind of forgot that it was animation kind of a quarter or a third of way through. And I just watched it like it was a movie. Uh, it's sumptuous in in its uh, sort of animated detail. There's a lot of love gone into a lot of the scenes. So I think this is the strongest point about the movie for me. I'm going to be a 10. Well, if you're going to give a movie a 10 for something, uh, I think that's a good choice. I think there's a stage play of this as well now. Who's there? It must be quite an amazing experience. But I'm not sure they could capture the, you know, the beauty of the uh, imagery as, as fully as you might want. So, is that all the categories we need? Yeah, just three. Overall, then. Overall, oh. it's a nine from me. Yeah, I'm afraid, predictably... I don't, I, I don't have a hot take on Spirit Away. It's just quite brilliant. Yeah, I'll give it a nine. I was looking for ways to disagree with the crowd on this one, but it's actually impossible. It's, it's a brilliant movie. Like I say, the only thing I would say is, you know, maybe some of the sexual politics is a bit funny. I don't know. But it's, it's, hey, it's a spirit world, right? Who knows? Um, that bit at the end as well, you know, I, I think in the... The lines that they added to the dub, the English dub, imply that Chihiro remembers it all. And she's saying knowingly, you know, I'll be fine, Dad. You know, this, this school will be easy after this. I think but weirdly, the- when she when her name is taken in the spirit world, she doesn't remember who she is, does she? As a, as a human. In the Japanese version, then, because that line is absent, you're left to wonder whether she remembers it all at all. And the, the horror is that she can't meet her boyfriend because he's a river spirit. Oh, he says that we'll meet again. Yeah, but only as a river. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe. So sad. If you, if you don't remember something has happened, has it ever really happened? I mean, who knows what we've experienced and forgotten? Could be anything, Paul. Yeah. What movie are we going to watch next week and forget that we watched... <laughs> so, uh, leaving that, a definite recommend for both of us for Spirited Away. Next week, Richard, uh, I only have one suggestion. I think we should stay on a manga tip, if that's okay, on an anime tip. 
because I said I'd be interested to watch Spirit Away because I thought I watched this uh, as part of Netflix, Netflix and Chill with a previous partner, but it wasn't this movie. I have found the movie I did watch, however, as a result of this. Okay. And that movie is Your Name. Your Name. So which yeah, one not Richard, is it? Not, the- not Rick, Richard. No, it's actually called Your Name. Eponymously, Your Name. Your Name. Bull. So which one is it that your friend wrote the translation for? Your Name. Not Spirited Away. Not Spirited Away. Okay, okay. Okay, so that's the story for next week then. Yes. Okay, good. Thank you for listening. And until the next week when we'll be re- reviewing your name, not your name, but the film. Your Do name. join us for episode 29. Goodbye. Ciao for now. See you in the next one. Ooh.